0: This New America NYC event took place on September 7th, 2017 and is titled Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. This event is part of a social cinema screening series at Tumblr and features Steve James, Thomas Song, Jill Song, Jesse Eisinger, and Sheila Kulhakar. excited to be here. I had the pleasure of watching this film last week. I thought it was very powerful and took a very complicated story and just really put a human face on it. Um, So we're just going to jump right into our discussion and I wanted to start off, you know, by asking the Sung family to talk to us about what this experience of going through this taught you about the justice system in this country and how
1: it works? I think that's the big question. Well, five years of struggle and uh, prosecution. I always want to say the word persecution. It wasn't easy. So um, to to a lot of people, to us, in some moments, it's almost like uh, after 30 some years of uh, building up an institution, watching how this uh, might possibly dismantle the whole effort and it surely it, it was a struggle.
2: One thing that I think we all as a family knew but realized more after this experience is that the justice system exists obviously in America but it takes a tremendous amount of resources and I'm not just talking about money but knowledge and um, personal strength to be able to use it properly. And we felt very lucky that we had the experience and the knowledge within our family to be able to face this but we also are very worried about the system because we know there are so many other people who do not have those resources this is you know that this really emphasizes this for us
0: well so i've done a lot of reporting on white collar crime and of course i've heard from so many people that the small the smaller defendants who often don't have the means to pay for defense lawyers and go on fighting they are frequently pressured to cooperate and to, to plead guilty, basically, to just cut off this hemorrhaging of money that goes on. So I'm curious to know, I mean, maybe this is something Jesse wants to comment on. Um, you know, what what effect does that have, the fact that it is so tilted towards wealthy defendants? They're the only ones sometimes who can fight. They're often advised by their lawyers to fight. Um, what does that do to, in terms of, you know, seeing justice in this industry?
3: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting this panel. I um think that it warps the system in the way that the movie so clearly and eloquently showed, which is that the the main abuse here is one of prosecutorial discretion or of allocation of resources and Um, What they end up doing is looking for wins, looking for easier cases. This is the most clearly seen in kind of street crime, where DAs, you know, abuse poor and, um, uh, you know, people of color disproportionately. Um, And then when they're going after white collar crime, to the extent that they do it all, they go after, um, I mean, this was unusual since it was the institution that they charged, but uh, a relatively defenseless community bank rather than going after a J.P. Morgan or a Citigroup.
0: So I wanted to mention that Jesse has just published this phenomenal book that has gotten tremendous reviews called The Chicken Chick Club, where he really charts the history of the DOJ and the way prosecutors have handled big corporate cases. And, um, you know, there was an interesting quote Cy Vance said at one point in the film, I think that every American was upset at the crisis we went through. And of course, he was referring to the financial crisis. So somehow he was able to conflate this case in your bank with the financial crisis, which was a source of tremendous rage. You know, so many people were losing their homes and there was all this frustration about the lack of prosecutions of bankers involved in mortgage fraud. So, you know, what, I mean, I'm interested to hear from anyone here, what, what does this case tell us about the priorities at the DOJ and what we should be concerned about in terms of their priorities?
1: Well, uh, one, one of the things we learned uh, because of this case is that the saying, justice is how much you can afford, and that really gave a lot of meaning to uh, to us because uh, even though we have prepared ourselves to make the institution serve the community, therefore we try in every way to make the institution safe and sound. But with a situation like this, it almost you know bring you to the point of exhaustion, not only uh, mentally and physically, but also financially. So in terms of uh, serving justice, as you have just said, uh, it favors the rich, it favors the strong, it, the disadvantaged, the poor. In, in, in lots of instances, are not justice does are not served. One of the things I, I thought after the case was over, we're thinking about our situation, it causes us like uh, seven, over $7,000 per hour uh, with all the legal fees, lawyers, and uh, going through so many layers of uh, obstacles that the prosecutor uh, put before us to overcome it to the point uh, legally we thought we had a good standing but yet the attempt was to drag this on so that we, could, uh, we would uh, succumb to the pressure of the, uh, you know, the might of the government uh, the unlimited resource. And this really make us feel notwithstanding this country's favor for equal justice for all. And as my daughter pointed out on the building of the criminal building that she, when she served as the D, assistant DA, in and out, you see that equal justice for all. But in reality, uh, it doesn't come because when you have someone who supposed to administer justice or serving in that position, they have the discretion, they have the power and the authority. And when that's misapplied, it really hurts the people, uh, it hurts the society and hurts the country and discourages uh, people from respecting the law. So that is my feel after the case was done, having experienced it
3: um i would i would also add that uh, i mean it seems completely ludicrous to think that abacus had any central role in the financial crisis as somebody pointed out in the movie um and and it is it is uh, obviously did not and so you look at the priorities of the Manhattan DA, um, and then more importantly, the Department of Justice, which had even greater responsibility, they were looking at these sort of sideline cases um, rather than confronting the banks. The the cause of the financial crisis in 2008 were um, the largest banks in uh, on the global stage, mostly American banks, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Uh, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, those were the causes, they caused the financial crisis. And um, instead you have a DA in Vance who um, clearly as a sop to the kind of perceives as the mob um, goes after a bank and tries to um, have this uh, justification being that there is this outcry for prosecution. Um, uh, Previous... uh, you know, D.A., Robert Morgenthau actually did prosecute major banks, um, prosecuted the banks after Enron, uh, J.P. Morgan, and Citi, um, and settled with them, um, uh, sought prosecutions, uh, and BCCI, Tyco. So he was really on the global stage with um, a sense uh, that we should go after the most powerful and the enablers rather than the small fry. So this...
0: this- Time around, what ended up happening to those big banks you just listed off who were deeply involved in the mortgage bubble? How, uh, did, how did they address they, the grievances of the public?
3: They the Well, the Department of Justice didn't prosecute a single top executive of any of the major banks uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. And they uh, settled with almost every major bank with banks writing checks. Large checks, um, checks that seem to be large, significant amounts of money, but the executives didn't pay those um, checks out of their own pockets. They were paid for by shareholders. Um, now, to uh, make two small points about this: one is that so the DA prosecutes Abacus, the entity itself. The Department of Justice was deeply concerned with prosecuting companies themselves, the corporations themselves, and they had the sense that those were too big to fail, that uh, a prosecution of a company itself might jeopardize the existence of the company. As you can see with Abacus, actually, ironically, um, that did not put Abacus out of business, thankfully, but uh, that also gives you the sense that maybe if you prosecuted J.P. Morgan, the entity, criminally, that it wouldn't necessarily put that out of business, which even um, highlights more their cowardice in not doing it.
0: Yeah, I think that, that argument was proven to be false. Yeah, Mark. Yeah,
3: I was gonna,
4: by the way, I'm not Steve James. If you were looking for sure. Steve, Steve unfortunately he can't be here tonight. He'd like to be, I'm the producer. We actually have a co-producer over here. He's Nick Verbitsky, who was very involved with Frontline in and, and that production. But, but I was gonna say that you know, based on what Jesse's saying and, and this whole idea of, you haven't really talked about collateral consequences, but Vance looked at, at Abacus and Abacus wasn't given the same deal as the big banks. He basically determined that if this bank were prosecuted and successfully convicted and they lost their charter and went out of business, there would be no collateral consequences to the community. It wouldn't hurt the community. Versus the big banks, which it's seen as those are much more severe. So it really wasn't an apples apples-to-apples comparison even in that regard.
0: Well, one thing Jesse kind of points out really well in his book is that they... Um You know, in the early 90s, the government did prosecute Enron and Arthur Anderson for Enron-related crimes. And Arthur Anderson went out of business and thousands of people lost their jobs. So when you speak to people in the DOJ now about this, they're very cowed by, you know, they were sort of traumatized by that. They got a lot of criticism for, you know, putting this company out of business and penalizing a lot of innocent employees. So that has clearly made them shy. And now it seems to have, you know, swung too far to the other direction.
3: Right, and, yeah. and did you, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I should add that uh, in Arthur Anderson's case, Arthur Anderson appealed. Finally, uh, Arthur Anderson was found to be correct, but it was too late. The Arthur Anderson was uh, dis- disappeared. Thousands of people who were employed by Arthur Anderson uh, did not ha- have their pension all wiped out and the insurance company would have compensated heavily for the loss, would, would no longer had this responsibility. So it was a disaster for the DOJ to make that decision to prosecute the company instead of uh, the individual that's, that was involved. Um, and that was the uh, theory behind uh, not prosecuting uh, institution that's uh, too big to fail for fear that uh, this would uh, Uh, greatly affect uh, the financial uh, system uh, altogether. But in our case here, uh, the DA uh, made an assessment. uh, Number one, we were too small to really affect the country as a whole. He surely should know that it affects the community because we were a major institution contributing to the growth of the Chinese community. But so what? The Chinese does not contribute to to his uh, election. So uh, politically, it was a very ex- uh, easy for him to make that decision. And finally, I don't know whether or not people realize that fact, that here uh, you have a DA uh, who is an institution established by the government to protect the society from uh, crime, uh, but he is located in Manhattan. Manhattan is unique because it's the financial center of the world. And therefore, every major institution has an office in Manhattan. So therefore, he has jurisdiction over every major institution of the world. So by prosecuting, sacrificing a small institution like ours, it enhances his ability to go or threaten, even though he could not bring them down, should not bring them down because the public policy-wise, but he could certainly established himself as a great threat in terms of extracting fines from the large institution. To make my point clear, after our case, it was disclosed and you will not believe that the Manhattan DA's office holds in the DA's account $808 million. Now, to administer that fund, he is not a not-for-profit organization. It becomes a private organization. The Economist Magazine has said, uh, it becomes a legal extortion organization. That is not serving the public. It does not serve New York City. It discourages the prosperity of the New York City because it discouraged financial institution for coming over to New York to establish itself, And it, it certainly hurts a small community like Chinese community in New York.
0: There was a very powerful scene uh, showing what what happened right after the arrest of all of the abacus, former and current executives, where they were, I think they were in handcuffs or some kind of handcuffs with the, chains. The handcuffs had um, chains connected to each other. So, so they, were, they were linked together with these cuffs and these chains, and they were trying to conceal their faces from the cameras, because of course, the news media is always invited to come and photograph the spectacle. And um, I mean, all sorts of defendants complain about the way they're treated, and I've certainly heard many insider trading defendants complain about the fact that uh, the Wall Street Journal had someone positioned outside their Park Avenue apartment when the FBI came to arrest them. So this spectacle of these arrests is is a common problem, but it did seem to have a special flavor in your case, of you know. It was disturbing to watch. I mean, that was my reaction.
2: Well, first of all, most of the people on that chain we call the chain gang because it was a chain gang were were not executives. There were lower level employees. Um, most of them were women on that chain, so had no issues of violence. Um, we did a little research into this when this happened because my sister, who is worked for the who worked for the DA's office at that time, she was shocked. She was there. She physically witnessed this, and she said she had never seen this. In her experience working for six or seven years in the DA's office. Um, so we looked into this, and it's highly, high, we, it's never heard of in a nonviolent, non gang arrest that they would chain people up together. Women, and some of those women actually were grandmothers, first time offenders. And if you see the, the card at the end of the film, the case was ultimately dismissed against all of them, and two of them in the front actually were found not guilty, exonerated with the bank. So this was clearly, despite what the DA's office said, and we have lots of analysis of this, they made a decision to do this, to basically mark these people and mark their power, and to, as a form of intimidation, to further make their point. Um, And this to me and to my family was an excess of power, and an excess use of the power. Um, and it was actually quite shocking to me because I've been born in the United States, I speak English perfectly, I went to school, I went to law school, and I did not think it would be possible to do this in this city, which is supposed to be one of the most diverse, most democratic c- city possible, cosmopolitan city possible, that one person could actually do this.
0: So obviously race was seems like an unavoidable factor here. I wondered if Mark wanted to quickly talk about how he thought about that as he, you know, approached the making of the film. Um, was, that, was that something you were very aware of when you went into it?
4: it, it yes, it was definitely a theme that we were, were cognizant of and you know, part of it was that, uh, just to give you a flavor of the background of how it all came together, I was friends with the Sung family and um, over the course of time of, of speaking with them before this all really started to take off, I really was, was quite surprised when they approached me to say that they were going to be potentially indicted. And I did a little bit of research and determined that they were the only bank that was going to be indicted for mortgage fraud. And that to me was stunning because, these are fine journalists here, no one really picked up on that. But yeah, we reached out to different news organizations and nobody really wanted to cover it. And ultimately, when it got to the trial, we determined that it was time to actually be able to do the documentary, to tell the story, regardless of whether they they were successful in their pursuit to be found not guilty, or they were found guilty. It was a story that needed to be told. But um, yeah, you know, we really we always suspected race, but until we actually talked to Cy Vance, and and you know Nick over here was highly responsible for. Um, Browbeating, we called Nick the Bulldog because he would constantly <laughs> call uh, Joan Valero, who is the PR person for uh, for Vance, and finally twisted her arm and, and Vance's arm to talk to us. But you heard it, you know in the in the film. and you, you'll notice those are all very long takes of Vance. It's not like we chopped it up to give it a perspective. We wanted him to be able to tell his story. He talked about this could have been a South American bank. This could have been an Indian bank. He didn't mention, you know, City or J.P. Morgan Shays. Yeah, Wells Fargo. So, right, Wells Fargo. I mean, you you pick it, yeah. but it was immediately went to the ethnic banks. So there. Yeah, was a well, revealing
0: he re- moment in the interview uh, for sure.
4: And, and I'm not sure if it was, uh, you know, subliminal bias, or the fact that he he just was not racially sensitive. But I will tell you, there's one thing that we, we didn't put in the film. I asked him, the last question I asked him was, you supposedly have a, a very strong relationship with the Asian American community in Chinatown. Can you tell us what you do to serve them? And he just froze, he just, he just couldn't talk about
0: it. No one had ever asked him that before, I'm sure, but yeah.
3: I can add sort of how the Department of Justice race, I'm sure, played a role in this, but also wealth and and corporate position. So I'll I'll tell you a little bit about how the Department of Justice approaches investigating a top corporate executive, which is that if the executive comes under some kind of scrutiny, um, they do not uh, announce themselves at 5 a.m. at the executive's um, apartment building. Uh, or throw them into the grand jury Um, that's almost done, uh, that's almost never done at, at the Southern District of New York. Instead, what they'll do is they'll call the lawyer. Um, And then there starts a long series of negotiations about what what they want, what kind of information that prosecutors are seeking, and how they will ask it. And the lawyer is able to extract a number of things, like is the person a target of the investigation, just a witness, a subject, which is a kind of sort of interstitial sort of um, phase. And then there's a long series of negotiations before the prosecutors will ever uh, actually interview the top executive. And, and
0: the lawyer, by the way, is usually a former prosecutor who <laughs> exactly. probably worked with the person right. who's so investigating. You're usually so negotiating
3: chummy. with your boss's former boss.
0: Yes, so um, they all know each other and yeah,
3: are very And cordial. so there's a terrible revolving door problem. There's a terrible sort of... Um, you know, courtesy problem, a kind of elite affinity problem here, and that's why uh, it, it follows that it makes it much easier to prosecute smaller hedge funds um, and, uh, and smaller banks.
0: You, you'd said something to me earlier about um, how the prosecutors often think about, well, or, or at least supposed to be thinking seriously about deterrence. And what they're doing is they're supposed to be punishing, wrongdoing, but they're also supposed to be deterring others from committing crimes. And um, and and you you explained this whole concept of a high-profile prosecution that I thought was really interesting. I was wondering if you could just explain that again and how this all this showmanship and using the media to um, really bring attention to some of these sometimes grotesque things that they do in the course of bringing these cases, you know, they... Sometimes they argue that there's a reason that they do that.
3: Uh, yeah, so uh, as someone who's been a victim of prosecutorial abuse, and there's a lot of it, uh, you're going to be very unsympathetic to the notion of bring, the perp walk and things like that. But uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani brought Goldman Sachs bankers off the trading floor in handcuffs um, in the late 1980s. My belief is that you can deter white collar crime with high profile Prosecutions. What I call for is prosecutions of individuals rather than entities, um, and prosecution of the highest level executive wrongdoing executives that you can, not going after low level executives. But when you do that, and I th- and you have to, I'm not calling for a b- prosecutorial abuse, but when you do that, there is a message that's sent because white collar criminals have white collar uh, potential criminals have stakes in society's reputations too protect, they pay attention to the news, and so they're going to uh, focus on this. And you can deter white-collar crime with high-profile prosecutions that may lend itself to abuses, but what you do want is some kind of attention-getting prosecutions of what I would hope for are worthy subjects.
4: One of the things that we found while we were doing the movie was that, and you might know this fact better than us, but 97% of white-collar cases never go to trial you're basically going to plead it out, plead it down, you don't want to do the time, you're afraid of what the consequences are. So you've really got to be lawyered up and ready to spend a lot of money if you want to go to trial. But Marget,
2: that, it's not just white collar, it's all felony cases. All felony.
0: So we're going to go to a QA and a in a moment. Before we do, I wanted to quickly ask Jill and Thomas to explain what's happened to the bank. What's, it survived, but what was that like? How did you save it and what's happening now? Um, It was, it took a
2: lot of effort. Um, We, um, the biggest issue for us was a concern about the bank run. The film point out in 2003, we did have a bank run when there was an employee malfeasance. Um, So we had, my father, his, the biggest thing that my father did was to go out ahead of the indictment announcement by Vance um, and tell the community, that this was happening. Um, He has built a lot of trust, and the institution's built a lot of trust with the community through these years, and his credibility and the bank's credibility was able to keep the community calm. And because of that, we were able to keep Pieced together during these past five years, even during the trial when everything was being bit by bit disclosed, and the, and the trial it turns out was very good for us because all the information was lies, and it turns out help, and it was reported in the Chinese newspaper, so it helped us in the end. We also lost a lot of counterparty relationships. Um, for example, Fannie Mae suspended their relationship with us during this period. Um, we have other banks we bank with um, that did not want to do business with us, which prevented us to be able to do give. Full services to our customers, um, so that that was very hard. And our regulator imposed a an you know an enforcement order, which also limited us what we can do. Now we've pulled ourselves out of it. It's about been two years since the tri- end of the trial, and it's taken two years for us to rebuild. And um, I think that we're at the point now where I feel like we have reached a certain level of stability and on that cuspus of growth that I'm feeling much more optimistic and hopeful about.
0: But so you're going in, you're going every day, making loans, it's sort of back to normal.
2: Uh, it's of. not back to normal, okay. but, right, but yeah. we, are, we are, we've always served our mission, which is basically to serve our community um, and ensure that our underserved community gets the financial resources and the help that they need. Um, but yes,
0: we, we've never given that up and we continue to do that today. So we have a microphone available. Please raise your hand if you would like... The microphone, and we will answer your questions.
2: Hi. Hi. Um, That was an excellent film, and I commend the Sung family for um, powering through. And you all presented such a a beautiful familial picture um, for us all, in spite of all those obstacles you were dealing with. So, um, as a a family of lawyers um, who have you know, gone through this experience where you've found, um, maybe possibly more clear than ever before, that the system of justice is justice if you can pay for it. Um, How has that changed how you practice law, if you're still practicing law, in addition to working at the bank? How has that changed um, your activism in the uh, legal field after coming through this experience? I'm not practicing right now, but I within the institution, we are we are engaging much more in the community than we've done. Be- we've always been engaged in the community, but in a much more deliberate fashion. we are we are we've identified advocacy as a very important part of what we consider our mission to be. So we're not just about giving out loans, but we're about advocating and and ensuring that our community, for example, votes. And, and has, a, you know, believes and understand that they have a stake in what's gonna happen next. And it's not just, oh, I go back to my job and tomorrow I wake up and I do my thing and everything's gonna be okay and I keep my head covered, no one's ever gonna bother me. So I would say that I myself personally have been much more focused on finding opportunities with nonprofit and other community groups to find ways to engage in activism and specifically in the voting area and in the political process.
5: Hi guys. Um, uh, this uh, question is really for Jesse. Jesse, with all the great work that you've done with your book, I wanted to get your perspective on this. Um, you know, during the process of filming, um, you know, I mentioned to Mark and Steve and, and had a lot of conversations with the people at Frontline about how the fact that, you know, the too-big-to-fail banks were never prosecuted and that was encouraging more bad behavior. But I'm interested in, in your perspective on whether, what you know, what's worse, that? or prosecuting people for doing it the right way. Because what happened here was they immediately reported the infraction to their regulator, they fired the people involved, and then they got indicted. So, you know, if I'm a community banker in Chinatown or anywhere in the U.S., and I find a Ken Yu in my loan office, what am I doing? I'm not going to my regulator. I'm going to fire him, give him a, 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 a... you know, a non-disclosure agreement and a severance package, and just clean it up. So I'm just interested in what your thoughts are on that. Uh,
3: that's a tough question. It's like, who do you hate more, your stepdad or your stepmom? I, uh, I, um, uh, I mean, both are terrible love abuses. Them. Love them um, I, uh, not that I, no, I, I love both of <laughs> them. Um, oh, but uh, I guess I would sort of say um, I'm more outraged, and I think it's more dangerous to allow the biggest. Um, entities, um, the most important financial entities in the country, and the most powerful people in the country. You know, among them, um, major corporate executives and um, top bankers, to have a culture of impunity. I think that undermines our notions of justice and democracy. I think it eroded our sense of fairness and legitimacy, and and we didn't hold anybody accountable after the crisis. So I think that that has that has. Um, helped destroy the fabric of the country in a way that has not yet been healed. In fact, I think it contributed to Trump. So that's very bad. Contrasted by the relatively smaller but outrageous injustice of an abusive prosecution of a community bank, I think, to take anything away from your experience, I think that the larger scandal is that we didn't prosecute the the real wrongdoers.
2: But I see it not really a conflict. I see no, it. I it it's, it's, it's a mirror image. Yeah, I agree. Because one cannot, what you just described, cannot exist without what happened to us. Um, it's it's just it's it's the same thing, but it's the application of what you just described in in, in the way you described it and in the way it Absolutely. happened to us. Yeah, and that's the part that that's you know. So it's not just the letting go; it's the terrorizing and the you know the abuse of those who are downtrodden. So both those exist in, that, in, that, in this universe we're in. Uh,
1: I, I think uh, part of the problem that you mentioned in your question is uh, why wasn't the DA prosecuting the wrong door, rather than prosecuting an institution who tries to do the right thing? And I think it's, it, it's fundamentally based upon the incentive for the prosecution to do what he did. And this is something that basically we could change You people can change, you can actively promote, take away the incentive from the prosecution to do that which is politically expedient for him, or financially it is beneficial for his office. When you take away the basic things that motivates him to do a wrongful prosecution, then you, we have done our part in making this society a much better society.
0: Another question? There's one up there. I have a
5: microphone here. Oh, okay,
0: someone has a mic. Where Uh, are you? i sorry.
5: I I just want to ask a question of uh, Jill. One of my favorite scenes in the movie was the family conference call. to discuss whether or not you were going to testify. So I was just wondering, in your own words, if we could hear a little bit more about how you feel now about that decision, how you felt at the time, and particularly in light of how long the jury's verdict dragged on and what it was like for you over those seven days waiting for them to render their verdict.
2: So um, i it's kind of hard to explain myself during this trial because it requires me to kind of go back and think of all these horrible things, but um, I had to compartmentalize myself, so I was myself a lot or else it would be very difficult to move forward on a day-to-day basis. And so this decision, and I actually did not want to be in that room when this was being debated, I was willing to do whatever my majority of my family decided in the end. If they wanted me to testify, I would have. If everyone fell in the end that probably strategically wasn't better for me, then I would have. So I kind of let myself kind of go in that way. You know, I didn't put myself a stake in the ground. And when it was decided, and it was a discussion among all among everybody, as you saw, that's just part of the conversation, a discussion with the attorneys. We decided that it was best not to legitimize the, the prosecutor's case. I mean, you guys didn't get to see the 57 days of the trial, but just that piece you saw in the film where can you tape where he was constantly lying? I mean there were like seven days of testimony where he, at one point, said, our lawyer asked him, well, in this document, what's true? And Ken literally came back and says, what is the truth? I mean, this is, I mean, this is just a piece of how ridiculous this whole prosecution was. You know, we're like, why, why do we put you up there? It's, like, it's almost like legitimizing what was so bad. Um, so that, that, I think we made the right decision, I we really do. And seven, whatever, I think it was 10 days, 10 business days, we sat there waiting, it was agonizing. Because I was like, why couldn't they see? You know, like, and my sister said in the film, how bad this is, that this is so wrong, and how how could you know they make a mockery of uh, justice to put this case up? But I didn't feel because I didn't testify that this was taking a long time. We just felt this was a process that we had to go through.
0: It was a remarkable look into how the juries work. Just the fact that they were deadlocked and then had to be reminded of what they needed to. Yeah. I mean, it was it was really a bit disturbing, actually. Uh, we have time for one more question. Hi.
5: Hi. Uh, Tommy, you look really good for 80. <laughs> so my question is uh, just leading back on his point where in terms of incentives that DAs and prosecutors have. Well, a lot of these positions are political in the nature and I guess as settlements and a lot of these fines lose political clout or stop making headlines. You think the pendulum will start swinging the other way and they'll start switching over? Well, it's more for just question.
0: Well, I, oh, can I Go add ahead. one yeah. thing? So, so this revolving door thing is a real issue, but there is also an argument to be made that it—the uh, fact that people can leave these jobs and make a lot more money afterwards—does perhaps attract some people into those jobs who would not otherwise pursue them. So, I'm curious to know too what you know whether that's helpful or not. I mean, these are people who have other options, but they choose to do this government work. And then they are rewarded with these fat corporate paychecks later.
3: Right. Um, um, I think that's a very malign incentive. but to to try to address your point, I think that the settlements are too appealing. they're they're too easy, and they appear to be, accomplishments on you know you can list them as accomplishments on your resume and it's actually what big law is looking for is to have you have a series of these kind of settlements with corporations so I don't think that the pendulum is swinging anywhere back especially because trials are very very hard one of the things is they don't do trials anymore in the 1970s they you do about eight per, eight trials a year the average US attorney I'm not talking about district attorney men Manhattan, but um, now they do 0.9. To, I'm sorry 0.29 trials a year so they do have, they really lack trial experience which exacerbates the their fear of trials and so they don't take on the most powerful entities going to trial as for the go ahead do you want yeah, to yeah no
0: well i so do, but doesn't bringing a big complicated case to trial Burnish your reputation for a big law firm? And if it doesn't, why not?
3: Yes, it does. It's just that the, um, well, for the law firm, of course. For the future um, employer the, law firm. For the, yes. Yeah, the... yeah, so some of the marquee prosecutors that you wrote about um, in your great book, and now it's turned time to advertise Black Edge, which is fantastic, <laughs> um, Mutual Admiration Society, that, uh, of course, they managed to parlay those high profile cases into very good paying jobs at white collar firms. That's um, the best way to do it, win a, a marquee trial against a, a target that gets in the Wall Street Journal, but that's the high risk because you can lose um, and you're working on something that's lasted years and years much, it, it takes faster to reach a deferred prosecution agreement with a corporation, you know, six to nine months rather than years. And if um, and they do insider trading cases, which I think are much easier to do, relatively easier to do, not easy, but relatively easier to to do than getting a CDO case. So to answer your question about whether or whether it's a good system to have these people go into these jobs and then have the ability to escape, I think it's too, too corrupting, and I think that what you should do is that the Department of Justice and the DA to some extent should hire differently. They should they should not be the Department of Justice should not be a training ground for future white collar defense partners. That, is, um, that corrupts the system. So what we should have is maybe refugees from our defense who are 50 or 55 and wanna leave, or plaintiff's lawyers, or consumer protection lawyers, or public interest lawyers, move them to be prosecutors.
4: Oh, I, th- I think the other side of this, this um, coin is, is the DA himself. So Vance is up for re-election this year. And how many people are running against Vance? How many people are running against Cyrus Vance? Zero. Nobody.
0: Yeah.
4: Nobody. So nobody wants to challenge the system, so he basically gets a free pass to be reelected. So if you get back to the idea of prosecutorial overreach, why is nobody standing up to, to challenge him? I think a lot of that has to do with his funding, which you could hypothesize could be coming from large banks and corporations that it's in their best interest to see him stay in power.
0: So I think I think we're out of time, right? Am I time-minders? Yes, so, um, oh, okay, quick follow-up question.
4: Sounds like a good follow-up documentary.
0: <laughs> a long article in ProPublica, potentially. Yes. Okay, yeah, well, okay, thank you, thank you all for coming and for asking such great questions.
2: Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.